Welcome to The Lover's Hole. It's episode 57 as we read through the Aubrey Matra novels of Patrick O'Brien. Ian, bring us up to speed here. Where did we leave off? Where are we headed for this week? Great stuff, Mike. Well, last week we were at the very beginnings of The Far Side of the World. The surprise had been given her orders for a long-distance pursuit of an American ship. Um, there were comings and goings among the personnel aboard the surprise, including the eye-catching person of Mrs. Horner, the gunner's wife. Jack had been practiced upon in some way by the Port Admiral, but on the plus side, Stephen and Mr. Martin, out of breath, were aboard in Gibraltar in plenty of time to depart. So this week, Mike, here's what's coming. We're off on our transoceanic voyage. There's more time to get the crew ready, so there are lots of great gun exercises. We're going to hear the singing voice of a Jonah, we're going to meet a goat named Aspasia. We're going to learn about whaling, about rounding the horn, about sailing Pacific waters. And we're going to learn about trouble brewing aboard HMS Surprise. Nice. Thank you, Ian. You mentioned it. Sorry, given the Norfolk's delay in port that we learned about last week. So the surprise for once, there is a moment to spare. They've got a little bit of time. And and Jack's really glad. You know, he's he doesn't have to drive the ship as hard as possible and risk carrying away sails, uh, especially if he has to round the horn because there's no place to resupply there. So Jack is thinking he's much better positioned to reach South America than the Norfolk, given where they're both leaving from. And he hopes that he'll be able to get to Cape St. Rock on the uh, far eastern coast of Brazil and then stand off and on and catch her as she kind of follows the trade winds going down there. But he knows, as O'Brien writes about the sea, the only thing about it he could rely upon was its total unreliability. He is especially grateful for this extra time to train his new men, given that they're going to be going up against the very capable Americans, these sailors who kind of cut their teeth in, in the you know, tough northeastern seas there that Jack had witnessed firsthand when he was aboard, you know, captured aboard the American ship there, and who, O'Brien reminds us, you know, yep. had beaten the British in the first three frigate actions in these, you know, 1812 naval battles. So Jack is really focusing a lot of intense training on the defender's men who, who clearly, you know, in his estimation, need it the most rather on than on his, you know, old surprise hands who have done this many, many, many years over with him. Right. And that sounds like a very sensible and reasonable way to focus your training. I think we might learn one or two things in this chapter, Mike, about what the impact of that is going to be for Jack and for the little family that is aboard HMS Surprise. Anyway, speaking of family, the family of officers haven't got together yet. We had a dinner in an earlier chapter aboard the flagship with the commander-in-chief. Now we get a dinner amongst the gunroom. Jack wants to invite the gunroom and get them all together quickly so that he can tell his officers about their actual destination, that they're not going to the East Indies after all, and also so that they can learn about the horn, about whaling, uh, about what Mr. Allen knows. So... Custom dictates that when the captain invites his gun room, especially first dinner of a voyage, that this should be special. It should be different from what they'd have in the gun room. But there's a snag. Jack has lost his cook right before they sailed. And his fallback is our old friend Preserved Killick. 
Killick is no hand at very much apart from toasted cheese. Um, so he got some last minute help from the rest of the crew. The old surprise sailor Joe Place is making lobscouse. Jemmy Ducks, the one who looks after the poultry aboard, is making a goose pie. And O'Brien describes the small blizzard that we see on deck as Jemmy Duck is plucking geese, worried that they will never be ready in time. A little bit of foreboding right there for Jemmy Ducks. Joe Place is in the galley cussing and moaning about how how he's going to get this lobscouse ready. And we're going to hear more about what the lobscouse consists of later on. But meanwhile, we are alerted to a couple of the crew members' superstitions. First of all, we get Killick talking about one crew member who can't wait to get to the Grand Canary, or Grand Canaria as we call it now, um, so that he can make a confession. So pretty unusual, not unheard of, but unusual for a sailor to be a Catholic. But this guy wants to get ashore so he can make a confession. Because why? Because the barky shipped a Jonah for one and a parson for two, and for three, the bosun's girl put a cat in his cabin, which crowns all. And Joe Place, who's reflecting on all the women who are aboard, which we talked about um, last episode, says, if there's one thing I hate more than another, it's a woman. A woman aboard the hooker. And I think they're reflecting a very old naval attitude <laughs> to the idea of being aboard ship as a single gender, male-only space. Far cry from the modern Navy, of course. There used to be a saying, Mike, many decades ago that uh, that things you should never have on board a sailing ship included grand pianos, umbrellas, naval officers, and women. <laughs> <laughs> so... Jack has all the officers except the two acting lieutenants, and he doesn't have Howard, the Marine officer, or the purser, but the rest of the officers are in the main cabin, and and Jack, with his respect for the cloth, has Martin, the parson, on his right. Um, Martin, one of the characters that's not in the movie, taken from this book, then he has Stevens and Pullings and Mowat, and finally, Alan on Jack's left. So a small group around the table there. And this table, as portrayed here, this is not the dinner that we've got kind of in the big first dinner movie scene in the movie. But the people around the table are all the same, right? With the exception of Martin. Yeah. I think in the movie, in the dinners, we had Howard, the Marine Lieutenant, at the table as well. Oh, right. right. Yeah, we had Jack in the persona of Russell Crowe. We had Paul Bettany playing Stephen. We had Moat played by Edward Woodall, and we had the master, Alan, played by Robert Pugh. So there they all are. Ah, well done, Ian. Yeah. Well, Jack introduces, as you said, the lobscouse. And, and you know, one of our favorite, and, and not only our favorite, but perhaps the only O'Brien cookbook in, in the universe that we know of is got this dish in its title here. So because... You know, as Jack says, it's one of the oldest folksal dishes. And he's telling Martin how much he loved it as a youth. But O'Brien tells us that Jack is actually remembering kind of a, a poor man's lobscouse. But this is a rich man's, a Lord Mayor's lobscouse. And the cook has been very generous with his slush, with this liquid fat. And in fact, this dish has at least a half of an inch of this liquid fat covering all the usual potatoes and pounded biscuits, uh, which are usually kind of the, the main substance here. But here, not only are we getting all this liquid fat, but we're getting a lot of fat meat and fried onions and powerful spices, which 
you know, are not the Rob Scouts that Jack remembers. So he's he's biting in and thinking to himself, oh my gosh, this is way too rich. I just can't even eat it. And he's very concerned about his guests. And, and he looks up to look around the table. And O'Brien writes, <laughs> yeah, I, I just love this. Nearly all the men there had been brought up to a very hard service. They'd endured the extremes of heat and cold, wet and dry, shipwreck, wounds, hunger and thirst, the fury of the elements and the malice of the king's enemies. They'd borne all that and they could bear this. They knew what was expected of them as their captain's guests, while Mr. Martin, when he was an unbeneficed clergyman, had worked for the booksellers of London, an apprenticeship in many ways harder still. And all of them were eating away, and not only eating, but looking as though they enjoyed it. (laughs) I mean, God God bless them. (laughs) What a great guy sitting right here. And, you know, Brian continues, he says, you know, perhaps they really do thought Jack. He was even more unwilling to stint his guests than to force food down their gullets. Perhaps I'd been eating too high, taking too little exercise. I've grown squeamish. And, and we, we hear Martin says, a very interesting dish, sir, said the heroic Martin. I'm, I'm putting an emphasis in there that O'Brien doesn't have, but we, we've catch. You know, O'Brien's kind of you know, got Martin going out of his way. And Martin says, I believe I will trouble you for a trifle more if I may. So here we are, these folks who, who know what's expected of them in this situation and who I think really love this captain. And we love what O'Brien can do with a simple dinner at sea. Oh, it's great, isn't it? The, uh, there's a family thing here as well. I'm going to keep coming back to this theme of family all the way through this book. But, you know, when when you're having a dinner with family and Mum or dad has made what they've made. You're going to eat it. Well, that, that was the way I was raised. You're going right. to eat it, and it might not be entirely to your taste, but it's part of the kind of love and companionship of the family is that we all kind of dig in. And <laughs> this does sound like the way it's written, it does sound like the world's worst hangover cure, doesn't it? This <laughs> Oh, yowch. Well, maybe that's not entirely <laughs> coincidental. They, they need it, right? <laughs> they, they need it. They do appear, though, to be loving the wine, partly, as they say in the text, to space out the viscous gobbets, uh, and partly because it was just good wine. And Mike, um, viscous, of course, meaning something that's gooey. Really interesting word, gobbet. I, I think you checked this out on Engram. This is an 1807 Engram hit. That's amazing. Right, right. Yeah. A, a, a lump or a mass of food, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and uh, mysteriously, there's like this 2012 resurgence of the word. And I thought, really? I haven't heard gobbit before. And I hadn't heard this either, that I guess now on examinations, students are assigned a certain passage or perhaps a photograph and a coin and have a very specific thing they have to write about this. It's called a gobbit. So <laughs> certainly not what we saw at this dinner. <laughs> Anyhow, good old Jack, he's hoping that with his family all together around the table, that the dinner's going to go well. He's slightly put off by the lobscouse, but he's relieved so far that none of his guests seem to be quailing. Um, He has a glass of wine with them, and he hopes that the goose pie will be better. But, writes Patrick O'Brien, there are days when hopes are formed only to be dashed. 
Mike, we should get a T-shirt with this written on it. There are, <laughs> there are days when hopes are formed only to be dashed. <laughs> the motto of the late middle-aged man. Eh? Anyway, again, Reverend Martin is the focus for all the commentary of this on this food. Um, Jack introduces the dish to Reverend Martin. He feels, as he cuts into it, he feels the soft dough, not hard pastry. And as he cuts in, he sees blood rather than gravy. And he Ooh. kind of covers this a little bit by getting into a little bit of nauticalia. He says, pies at sea are made on nautical lines, quite unlike pies by land. The number of decks required. This is a three-decker, so there is a spa deck, main deck, middle deck, lower deck. And Martin objects, but that, that makes four decks. Yes, said Jack. All first-rate ships of the line, all three-deckers, have actually got four decks. By counting the all-op, you could make it five or even six, if you include the poop. We only call them three-deckers, you understand. And Mike, this is, this is classic, you know... Royal Naval Obscurantist right. <laughs> jargon of a kind that I think we had way back in Chapter 1 of Master and Commander. Yeah, it, it's not really a sloop, it's a ship. We call it a ship, but really it's a sloop. Yeah, that, it's all that kind of thing. Right. So now then, goes on, Jack. Um, I come to think of it, perhaps we should say deck when we really mean the space between the two of them. I am very much afraid it ain't quite done, hesitating over Martin's piece. Not at all, not at all, cried Martin. Goose is far better rare. Martin's really pushing it out here, trying to be ingratiating. God bless him. Goose is far better rare. I remember translating a book from the French that stated on great authority that duck must always be bloody. And what is true for the duck is truer still for the goose. And here comes a potential Aubreyism. What is sauce for the duck? Began Jack. But he was too depressed to go on. Jack oh, loves yeah. a witticism more than any we know, but he just can't pick it up and run with it because this dinner is such a disappointment. Anyway, the officers carry on. They really enjoy the side dishes. We have Menorcan cheese, and everything can be saved by good cheese, we know. Uh, there's dessert, a capital port, which overlaid the unfortunate, even vulturane, memory of the geese. They drank the king, wives and sweethearts, and confusion to Bonaparte. <laughs> and Mike, um, th- there is an echo of exactly this toast, the wives and sweethearts toast in the movie. Let's just hear it. Well done, gentlemen, to wives and to sweethearts. May they never meet. (laughs) Now, I can't remember if O'Brien ever actually wrote the full version of that rather jokey and politically incorrect toast. It's certainly part of the canon of vaguely jokey (laughs) bits of Navy repartee. But these toasts are really saying something about the connection between uh, between the characters here. They, they really are. And I love this. I remember this from the movie. Just this, this idea, not it, not just that, that cheeky line, which was also, I found funnier earlier in my life. <laughs> I do now. But yeah. but this idea of, 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 you know, a tightly bonded group around kind of a ritual toast that, that kind of keeps you together here. Um, and this idea that, you know, they're always drinking the king. They're you know, they're always drinking confusion to Bonaparte. And I remember, you know, kind of the heyday of, of, of a great business expansion, a team that I was part of. Uh, and, and it was fueled largely by our finding a way to stop competing internally and join forces to serve the marketplace. That, you know, <laughs> one, of, one of the guys who is just phenomenal, he would always end our dinners by lifting his glass and saying, 
confusion to our enemies and we would all lift our glasses and respond and they know who they are, the bastards. But you know, the, the, the irony was, you know, only, only months earlier, we were all those enemies sitting around competing for business internally. And now, thank goodness, you know, we were joined together like this company in Jack's great room here. <laughs> Excellent. Keep your enemies close. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> so... As the dinner winds to a halt, Jack asks the Gunrooms forgiveness for speaking of service matters at the table. He tells them that they're not, after all, bound for Java, for the East Indies, and he outlines the mission to pursue the American ship potentially all the way into the Pacific. And he asks the master, Mr. Allen, to tell everyone what to expect if they have to round the horn and to educate them all on whaling, focusing particularly on his voyage with Captain Colnett. And this is the same Colnett that Henish Dundas claimed to know all about and Jack had to <laughs> to forswear all knowledge of a couple of chapters ago. Right. Now, Stephen's really interested. He says, I'm interested in hearing about the horn. That cape, he says, notorious above all others for danger, for endless beating into enormous westerly gales, for hope long deferred, scurvy, and ultimate discomfiture. And it's clear from this that Stevens never rounded Cape Horn. Mike, I'm pretty sure that we as readers haven't been round Cape Horn in company with Jack, at least not yet. We've been around the Cape of Good Hope going east along the southern tip of Africa quite a few times. Jack, as a sailor, I'm sure will have rounded the horn at some point, but it was without us, the readers, peering over his shoulder. And take a quick look at cannonade.net and you can see we've been south and east many times so far in these stories, but never south and west. And the prevailing winds are westerly. The further south you go, the stronger the wind and the waves get. And you remember the bad weather that they had getting to around the Cape of Good Hope uh, in Desolation Island, and I think also in HMS Surprise. Rounding Cape Horn from the Atlantic side to the Pacific side means sailing against, sailing into all of these wind and waves, the strongest wind and the strongest waves on the planet. So Stephen's right to be curious. Wow. Wow. And, and you know, it's kind of... I, you know, I think it's great to to layer in here because I think O'Brien is setting us up. We're getting kind of these yeah. uh, the drum beats started of of what might be yet to come. I love that. Alan grew up in a whaling family, and and you know his family had started whaling in the northern Greenland fishery, and then eventually you know he moved into the southern fishery, and and that was where his journey with Colnett was as well, and. And both yeah. the Americans and the British had moved kind of from northern waters to the southern for whaling over the years, with the British being the first going around the horn for spermaceti whales, leading to much longer hauls and much longer journeys. And, and Alan tells us about all that, except that this going around the horn and being over there on the Pacific side was always, there was a jealousy of the Spaniards. There was a jeopardy there of not knowing whether there's war or peace, whether the ports were friendly or not. And there had been one incident, the, the Nootka Sound incident. Uh, this is on a remote inland on v Vancouver Island, where in 1791, uh, some English ships, were, which were trading furs, were seized by the Spanish during peacetime, leading to a big rearming of the Royal Navy. You know, something uh, O'Brien referred to here is a Spanish disturbance. And Jack is remembering this fondly because it was part of that rearming that got him his lieutenant's step. So um, 
since then, whalers have been very careful here. And, and the whalers had asked government uh, uh, after 1792 or, or kind of leading up to 1792 to kind of help them find places for supply and refitting and watering in these waters so that they wouldn't have to be dependent on Spanish ports. So in the winter of 1792, Allen went with Colnett on the Rattler on a half exploration, half whaling expedition through these waters to seek these ports and sources of supply. And and Allen tells the officers about whaling and about his journey with Colnett. Right. So he's told us a bit about the history and he goes on to expand on the, the natural life that he encountered. He gave, de- he gave detailed descriptions about whaling, about birds and islands, answering everybody's questions, especially, of course, Stephen and Martin, who had all these questions around natural philosophy. And he, he talked about the differences between the different species of whales and how they're hunted and killed and harvested, and therefore got us into learning about their anatomy. And I think this is starting to turn one or two of the stomachs around the table. Jack, we learned, tuned out some of the conversation about whales' hearts and circulatory systems, but came back when he heard the word Jonah. But they were only saying about the prophet Jonah, who was probably swallowed, we think, by a sperm whale, according to the biblical story. And the officers carried the conversation on from sperm whales to Jonah's and then to the fate of crews who sailed with these Jonah's before moving on to other subjects. And Mike, I, I really noticed the difference here. The historical piece about Colnett was sort of interesting, and clearly it shows a bit of scholarship on O'Brien's part, but it didn't really stick in my memory. It didn't have much impact. But the whaling and the anatomy absolutely did have an emotional impact. We learned much more about how people responded to it. I think that O'Brien clearly cares about it and wants us to care about it with his love of animals and all things natural. And raising the subject of Jonah's gets us into what I think is going to be an important element of the story and of the superstition behind what's coming in the story of this book. So lots to look forward to, I think. Lots of kind of little little foreboding hints here. But meanwhile, the account of whaling is going to continue even after the formal dinner is over. So back in the gun room, Alan, Stephen and Martin continued this conversation about whales and anatomy, joined in by the purser who is there because he's a hypochondriac and he likes medical conversations, and joined by Lieutenant Howard of the Marines, who thinks that vaguely salacious sexual matters might come up. Where he gets a turn on from the anatomy of dead whales, I don't know, but who knows. Mm. Um, Alan then explains the difference between the northern and the southern fishery. We'd mentioned it earlier on in the conversation about Colnett, but Alan goes on to explain how the northern shorter season, Atlantic only, and the southern going into the Pacific all year round, unlimited season, those two different patterns mean that the southern fishery is much more profitable. Even though the whales are of lesser value, they don't get whalebone, and they don't get much of that spermaceti, the head matter, and they get much less amounts of this really valuable sperm oil per whale, but in the north, there's only a month to fish in the season once you've arrived. Whereas if you go south about, you can continue whaling all around the world for years. So Stephen and Martin walk on the deck so that Stephen can smoke a cigar while they wait for Alan to prick the chart and come and rejoin them so they can keep the conversation going. And Mike, here's a moment. <laughs> here's a moment that begins to tie in, I think, with the movie. Um, they're all on deck so Stephen can smoke a cigar all the hands are on deck as well because it's a make and mend day. 
Mr. Midshipman Hollam is singing as he shows a midshipman, a squeaker, how to show on a pocket. And Stephen and Martin both notice what a beautiful singing voice Hollam has. And Stephen says, if he keeps on improving like this, the men will soon stop calling him a Jonah. Stephen, you, you just said the word out loud. That's terrible. We notice that Hollam doesn't any longer look thin or poverty-stricken. And uh, Stephen says, some, those who don't require a great deal of masculine determination and energy, might even call him handsome. And might, of course, for those who do ad- be, admire a bit of masculine determination and energy, there's always a lubber's hole to fall back on, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> So um, Holland finishes the sewing job and he asks the midshipman to return the spool and the scissors to Mrs. Horner, the gunner's wife. Stick a pin in that. Mm. And Mike, this sounds a lot like the setting of the moment in the movie where Holland is singing a little excerpt from Spanish ladies as the gunroom folks come on deck after dinner. short time to see you again come on you bold young thoughtless men a warning take by me and never leave your happy homes to sell the raging sea so we get Stephen remarking on the voice and in the movie it's a really great moment i think setting up Hollum as an outsider and it sets this really awkward tone and highlights Hollum's character as being out of place i think the moment in the movie movie is probably a combination of this one and the one coming in a few paragraphs time where Holland is singing rose in june but we'll uh, we can come back to that right and and then somehow in the movie they managed to do all this without mrs horner <laughs> yes indeed <laughs> <laughs> as they're waiting for alan to come back asphasia the uh, the gunroom goat reminds Stephen of his duty, writes O'Brien, which which I assume is to tell him that, you know, it's his job to give her the stub of his cigar once he puts them out. Or perhaps it's oh, yeah. it's Aspasia's job to remind Stephen not to smoke these things all the way down here. So maybe she's monitoring. But but Stephen complies and and he puts this cigar out, he gives it to Asphasia, and and then she walks back to the hen coop, and, and in the shade, she's chewing on the stub with her eyes half-closed as as Alan passes by and returns. And, and and we had to stop here for a minute and say, who names a goat Asphasia? Well, Patrick Bryan does, of course. And, and is it just some classical name at random? We kind of suspect it's not. And sure enough, Asphasia was born a citizen of Miletus in Greece, but became the mistress of a leader of Athens. So she's from a different city-state. And, and Pericles, who was a, you know, a, a very uh, top leader and, and general in Athens, uh, she's his mistress from about 1445 until his death in 429. And unlike most of the women in Athens who were illiterate, she had been educated by her father. And because she was not a legal citizen of Athens, she was not restricted like the female citizens of Athens were. And she opens up an academic center, right, for the exchange of ideas. And she attracts many of the leading thinkers and writers of the day and actually is credited with helping to teach Socrates, uh, she's included in the writings of Pericles, her, you know, her love in Plato, in Aristophanes, in Xenophon, and, and others. And 
she also, as as one can imagine, picks up a considerable amount of derision from from others who who kind of you know don't like seeing her playing this role among the men of Athens here. So in in well, if she if she'd been on Twitter, it would have been a whole amount worse. I tell you. Oh my gosh! And the truth. So, but you know, you know, if if we had been on Twitter, at least we'd get a lot of things written down. And unfortunately, in the history here, there's not that much, and it's very divided. You know, some see her as an absolute intellectual yeah. luminary. Some see her as a courtesan, and and there's a great deal of debate about her life because of all this. But isn't it just like O'Brien? You know, as our guest Rachel McMillan had said back always, you know, O'Brien, who writes the most complex women in literature, to name a goat asphasia, to provide us with yet another fascinating woman for anybody who, like us, likes to pick up the corner of the rugs in these stories, examine these Easter eggs. And, you know, it kind of makes us think, I think, that, that women are going to play an important role in this story, even though they managed to get the movie done without them. Ah, yes. And it's a really interesting point, isn't it, here that we're talking about the movie where this, the real determining factor, one of the big differences between the movie and this book is the absence of female characters. So we've got Aspasia the Goat. We've got Mrs. Horner. We've got quite a few female characters for us to mull over. I think my, maybe Mike, we should just take a step back and just, just double check our gender politics and come back right after the break. If you're enjoying the podcast, please come and join our supporters on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash lovers hole. Welcome back. It's great to have you back with us. We also want to say it's been great to have your company on Patreon. We've got a few new Patreon supporters at the moment. Welcome to you. We really appreciate the help that you're giving us here on the show. We want to say hello as well to listeners on YouTube. You're all very patient with us on YouTube because sometimes the publication dates get a little out of skew. But we've had some great responses and some great comments from you all on YouTube. And if you all like consuming your content on YouTube, then The Lover's Hole is there. All the episodes are there. We've even put the books together in playlists for you if you want to follow along a particular book. So a big hello to our YouTube subscribers there. So meanwhile, we had just been talking... (laughs) about um, Stephen's uh, growing connection and obligation towards the goat Aspasia. He's responsible for her maintaining her nicotine habit. Right. Now, before Alan had left, Stephen had asked, you mentioned the finner. He's referring here to a kind of whale. You mentioned twice the finner with strong disapprobation. And Mr. Martin and I would be most grateful were you to develop your views at greater length. And Alan now answers their question. Well, now, he says, as for those old finners, gentlemen, you have four main kinds and there's nothing to be said for any of them. Why is this, Mr. Allen? asked Martin in a disapproving tone. He didn't like to hear so large a branch of creation so condemned. Because if you plant your harpoon in a finner, he is apt to knock your boat to matchwood or sound so deep and run so fast he either tows you under or takes out all your line. Never was a creature so huge and fast. I've seen one run at 35 knots, gentlemen. A hundred foot long and God knows how many tons running at 35 knots, twice as fast as a galloping horse. It's unbelievable, was you not, to see it with your own eyes. And if 
by any wild chance you do kill him, or far more likely you come upon him stranded, his whalebone is so short and coarse and mostly black, the merchants will not always make an offer, nor will he yield you much above 50 barrels of indifferent oil. <laughs> and Mr. Martin, he, he makes this remark that kind of reminds me about some of the remarks about birds back on Desolation Island. Martin says, he can scarcely be blamed for resenting the harpoon. Right. Well, <laughs> and Alan goes on to tell him in detail about a boat from his earlier ship who, for reasons unknown, had harpooned one of these fin whales and lost all the men. And Stephen asked if sperm whales are as swift and as formidable. They could be, says Alan, but they are not. No whales attack unprovoked, but some bump into you while you are sleeping. And Martin, who I think is still hung up on the idea of slaughtering an innocent animal like a fin whale, says, he asks, um, Alan, how do you feel when you take so vast a life? Alan says he feels richer. And he's about to say more when we hear that land has been sighted. Yeah, it, it's fascinating to me. In, as you said, O'Brien, clearly an animal lover. And, you know, we've, we've lost a little bit of the subtext where throughout this discourse, Alan has oftentimes answered questions or talked about how how gentle the whales are, how they come up yeah. and look at you, how he's touched them with his hand. And and we really, these huge, gigantic things, we kind of get this really um, nice, wonderful feeling about them, which you know I, I kind of want to underscore because we're going to contrast that here in a bit, I think. Yeah, right. <laughs> so they, you know, they had sighted land and Martin thinks it's Grand Canary. And he's so excited, he kind of jumps up on the rails to see better. He falls back, lands hard on Stephen's feet. Stephen excuses him, but he also points out that it's not Grand Canary, it's Tenerife. And he tells Martin that, you know, there's no need to be springing about because he's not going to get to see any of them. He, he will not get to see the canary bird upon her native heath. He's kind of talking about how his experience, years long experience with Jack, that you know, even though the wonders of nature are right there, you know, the, uh, the, the requirements of the service have them press on. And O'Brien writes, prophets of doom are nearly always right. And Martin saw no more of the island than could be made out from the main top as the surprise stood off and on while the launch ran in. Another great line. We had that great line earlier. You know, this is one I, I, I want to have on my pint glass, right? The prophets of doom are nearly always right. right? So yeah. It's funny. It's, it sounds like it should be a quote from something. I searched online to say, oh, Shakespeare must have written that or something. But no, it just seems like it's just a good line. Well done, O'Brien. Right. We, we do love it. So, you know, although the prophets of doom were right, the launch does come back with a cook for Jack, huh. courtesy of Jack's friend, who happens to be the town's governor there on Tenerife. And Stephen does console Martin a little bit. He tells him, you know, not to worry, even though we're not going to see the canary birds here. There is this one island that we may get to set foot on that has a puffin that's only found on that island. And Martin, all excited again, you know, has how long until we get there? And Stephen is this great little dialogue of Stephen or, or kind of a monologue of Stephen in this is, is the use of funny naval expressions. And as Stephen calls them, the poetical expressions that seamen use, like flowing sheets and doldrums. And he tries to explain to Martin what those are, as, as we learn that Stephen, of course, <laughs> really has no idea what they are. But it's good fun. <laughs> 
Excellent. Excellent. Now, we carry on here telling the story of what life is like aboard the Surprise. We've been very focused on Stephen and Martin and the gunroom and on Jack and on Alan in particular. But we're now going to get to spend a bit of time with the crew at large. And we also get, I love how O'Brien personifies the ship herself. He says that the Surprise, although not quite yet her joyful self again, having too many right awkward bastards to deal with, was far from sad or despondent. In 28 degrees, 50 minutes north, she picked up the trade wind. <sighs> so the surprise lives, even though we expected this was the end of the line. She lives a little longer and we get another little familiar O'Brien trope of him describing the daily ritual of blue water sailing, including the daily expenditure of Jack's private powder store, training those ex-defenders on the great guns. The evening, it says, would be lit by fierce stabbing flames, the ship a little private storm that emitted clouds, thunder, and orange lightning. And I think, again, O'Brien really likes to call our attention to light and darkness when he wants to really set a scene, and he's doing it here. Jack wished, though, that the weather wasn't so nice. We learned that he really loves a good blow, a good two or three days blow to help pull the crew together. He thinks that they need to be pulled together. He sees the old surprises playing together on the deck, dancing and skylarking while the defenders are sitting off on their own, not taking part or laughing. As Jack talks with some of the crew who are playing this game, this party game called King Arthur, the text says, In the momentary silence, a very curious, shrill and inhuman voice, not unlike that of Punch or Judy, called out. I'm not going to do a Punch and Judy voice here because it'll kill my throat. I'll tell you what's wrong with this here ship. The people ain't mickable, and their defenders are picked on perpetual. Extra duty, extra drill, work double tides, always picked on day and night. Tom Pipes cuts capers over us, and the people ain't mickable. Now, we'll come back to mickable in a second, but the text goes on to make this even more awkward as this sort of silence gathers. The tradition of not informing was so strong that all except the stupidest foremast hands instantly looked down or over the gunwale or into the twilight sky with studiously blank faces. And even the stupidest, having stared open-mouthed at the speaker for a brief moment, followed suit. The speaker was perfectly obvious. Compton, once upon a time the defender's barber, his mouth hardly moved and he was looking over the bows with an abstracted expression but the sound came directly from him, and almost at once Jack recalled that he was a ventriloquist. The extraordinary tone was no doubt part of the act. The words were meant to be anonymous, impersonal. The occasion was as unofficial as anything aboard could well be. And in spite of Pullings's obvious desire to collar the man, the incident was best left alone. Carry on, he said to those around King Arthur as he watched for half a dozen buckets before walking back to the quarter deck. In gathering darkness, this taxi, and I'm, I'm, I'm so reminded of, you know, Richard Snow back in 1991. Um, he wrote a review on the on the front page of the of the New York Times review of books that kind of was changed the tide, if you will, for for Patrick O'Brien in the U.S. He he wrote that, um, yeah, they're the best historical novels ever written, and he went on later to say, on every page, O'Brien reminds us with subtle artistry of the most important of all historical lessons, that times change, but people don't, that the griefs and follies and victories of the men and women who were here before us are in fact 
the maps of our own lives. And, you know, there's so many scenes in the canon that illustrate Snow's point. And I, I think this well-made point. And, and I don't even think this scene is in the top 100 of them. But, you know, I always pause on sections like this and I'm reminded of why I love this series so much and how O'Brien does this incredible work with the characters, with this age and this time and how we get to see ourselves in the characters, you know, about, you know, this culture of not informing, this person trying to say something informally, it's kind of backfired on him. Jack, who could easily explode, doesn't. He wants to handle this in a different way. But also, O'Brien not only, you know, zeroing in on these characters, but giving us, pulling back into the cinematic view, you know, ends this scene with saying, you know, Jack walks back into the gathering darkness. So we know this is not good stuff here, right? Uh, yeah, this is not good stuff. It really isn't. It's a, a really important moment to sort of hear how this family's not gelling. Right. And there's this perceived injustice as well. The defenders regard themselves as put upon. And O'Brien had been dangling this to us for many, many paragraphs, many chapters already. But now we start to see that whatever Jack's good intentions are about the training, he's left with this division between the different sides of the crew. And by the way, Mike, this, this word mickable, I'm pretty sure it's it's a shortening of the word amicable, meaning without serious disagreement or rancor. Um, Engram says it was used in the 1800s. Um, and I think it's a lower deck contraction of this word amicable. And maybe they've got a sort of a wrong-headed correction of the tendency that, that working class people have to put ah in front of things, a sailing or a drinking. And they thought, well, this word's got an ah in front of it, so we should drop the ah to make it posh and polite so it becomes amicable. I don't think it's just, right. just a theory. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Well, later that night, you know, this is still on Jack's mind, and he and Stephen are together to play some music, and, and O'Brien lightens the mood a little bit for us as Jack asks Stephen about having heard of Ventrilogus before, and, and Stephen's telling him about the Ventrilogus, and then Jack's saying, you know, perhaps the place has to be enclosed. Perhaps the principles of the Whispering Gallery apply. At all events, it don't answer on deck. But the fellow uh -huh. thought it did, right? This guy thought that we wouldn't know who's speaking, but but we did. Jack says it was the strangest experience. There he was telling me things to my face as though he were invisible while I could see him plain as, Stephen says, the ace of spades. No, not quite that. As plain as, oh, God damn it. As plain as the palm of my hand, a, a turnpike. Stephen says, uh, Salisbury Spire. Uh a red herring? Well, per perhaps so, says Jack. And at all events, <laughs> the defenders gave me to understand they were unhappy. <laughs> yeah, and Jack's got good insight here and great self-control. He hasn't decided to lash out. It, it wouldn't have been his style anyway. But maybe a younger Jack would have said, I'm going to show them who's in charge and I'm not going to be spoken to like that on the deck of my own ship, even through uh, somebody throwing their voice. But... He's just got a bit of insight and he steps back from a bit. He says, this is the strangest thing. They're telling me this to my face. And um, you've got all these really excellent half Aubreyisms coming out here. He's trying to work out what the, what the best metaphor is for being plain. Um, turnpike, I, I think he's mangling the idea of plain as a pike staff, which is a very old um, British English expression dating back to the 1500s. Red herring, a, a literary device to mislead the reader. Like we never have any of those in Patrick O'Brien. Right. Um, Salisbury Sphere, perhaps that's a reference to the tallest cathedral spire, not sphere, in England. 
Um, Jack finally, finally gets to the point that he realizes clearly that he's meant to understand that the defenders are unhappy. The question, though, is what's he going to do about it? Right, right. I mean, when they, you know, when they were originally talking about bringing them on board, he and Poulings were saying that you know, usually when a crew is a little mutinous, it's the fault of the officers. So, you know, it it's fascinating to me. I wonder if Jack's doing a little soul searching, saying, "Hmm, you know, we were thinking that, you know, while this is going to be a tough lot to deal with, we could do something different with them." And obviously, it's not going differently right now. So, as you say, Ian, what will Jack do about this? And, and as if by magic, a potential or a partial answer appears because who drops through an open skylight but the bosun's cat, an actual cat, not the cat of nine tails, the actual cat. Right. And Jack's, Jack says that Hall of the Bosun's going to ask Stephen what to name the cat. And I love this. This made me absolutely roar with laughter when I first read it. Makes me giggle every time. Stephen's right there. He said, Jack, Jack's saying, I want a classical name that will reflect credit on the ship. And Stephen replies straight away, the only possible name for a bosun's cat is scourge which <laughs> which a is funny repartee from steven great work and b is a really great echo of one of the means by which jack might try and restore discipline on the ship not likely to be successful given the put upon feelings of the defenders but one of the resources at his disposal is the cat is the bosun's punishment scourge by the way great name for a cat uh, in the dictionary it says it's a whip for punishment or it's the act of whipping um, somebody or something that and it causes great suffering and jack caught on quickly almost as quickly as i did and we read that his great fruity laugh boomed out setting the, the larboard watch on the grin as far forward as the break of the forecastle. jack repeats the joke to killick when he calls him in to remove the cat and bursts out laughing again stephen Having been quick with the repartee, decides to play it very, very straight. He reminds Jack that the scourge, the whip, is a vile thing, and it's no laughing matter. Jack says, of course, that Stephen and Martin agree on that and reminds him that Surprise is not a flogging ship. The cat is only ordered when necessary. Stephen's still pushing back. He says, in anything but a servile constitution, it would never be countenanced. <sighs> so, Mike, we've, we've gone from the upset defenders even after they've had a good gunnery session and they've been given time off, to talking about scourging. And now we get on to the next day. Really, really fascinating movement of topics. Are we going to have peace and calm and goodwill? No. We have some blood in store for us. <laughs> exactly. Right. It's like, gosh, where are we going here? Because, you know, right on to the next thing, it's after Jack and Stephen have been talking, Stephen and Higgins later that evening are sharpening their instruments because tomorrow they're going to enter the tropics. And, you know, Stephen's habit is whenever we cross the line and we're going to have this extended time in the hot sun, he bleeds everybody on the ship. So we've got Stephen and Higgins sitting there. They're not saying much to each other. O'Brien's telling us kind of what's running through Stephen's mind. And one of the things he's thinking about is that Higgins must have clearly stolen somebody else's medical certificate because he he doesn't know any medical terms. He never engages Stephen in conversation. Uh, but hey, he does a great job pulling teeth, and Stephen's still glad he brought him on board. But he's starting to get a little bit worried here. Some of the ship's men, especially the hypochondriacs, are starting to consult with Higgins rather than Stephen. And Stephen is hearing very strange tales, like a tale about a live eel removed from one man's bowels. But for now, 
neither one speaks to the other as they sharpen their instruments getting ready for the next day. It's really odd, this thing with Higgins. Stephen is normally a pretty good judge of character, but he seems to get caught out by just how much of a quack Higgins really is, even though Stephen was warned. There's something about awareness here. Stephen seems a bit quick, maybe, to trust people who have mastery of a skill that he himself lacks. So he's quick to trust Jack, who can sail ships, and maybe he's a little bit too quick to trust Higgins, who can draw teeth. Right. The next day, Jack's on deck. The winds are weaker than he'd ever felt in, in this part of the trades, but, he, but he's still feeling happy, and he, he watches the defenders, stow the guns. There's another good practice there. He listens to the midshipmen as they're kind of reciting Latin verbs, and you know he appreciates how Martin is teaching them. He appreciates how Mrs. Horner, the gunner's wife, is looking after them and keeping their shirts clean, although he wonders if perhaps she's she's pinching a little bit of the fresh water to get them so clean. (sighs) What would the Admiral say? (laughs) Right, exactly. We'd heard about that, right? And, you know, Jack and others on the deck are calling out jokes about the bosun's cat because that scourge, the name, has now made its way all around the ship. Everybody's having a good time, which is kind of an example of, Again, what a friendly family it is here. It's not one of this, you know, you only speak when you're spoken to here. And and Jack and Pullings are discussing, you know, maybe it's punishment day, but there are really no significant offenses. And, and they're both kind of a mind to say, you know, let's just let it go. Come on, we're going to be crossing the tropics. Everybody's going to get bled. Let's not worry about punishment today. When Jack looks up and he sees Nagel, an ex-defender, walk right past midshipman Hollum, who we were just talking about, the singer, without acknowledging him at all. And Jack just kind of loses it. He's very upset. He has the master at arms seize up Nagel and put him in shackles because he will not put up with deliberate insubordination, if you will. Yeah, and so we're getting a bit of a payoff. So from the possibility, or rather the the kind of insinuation of the upset and the injustice perceived by the defenders, we've got an actual defender, this guy Nagel, putting himself right in the way of the charge of mutiny here. And this is a moment, Mike, that's unquestionably in the movie. Between these exactly these two individuals, um, Holland played by Lee Ingleby and Nagel, played by an actor called Brian Dick in, as I remember, his native Cumbrian accent because Peter Weir really went for actors who could do you know, interesting-sounding accents, I think, in the movie. Now, Nagel's character moves on and develops and has you know things happen to him that were borrowed from other books than this one, I think. But this insubordination between Nagel and Holland has the same action and I think the same storytelling purpose in both the book and the movie. And, and while this is going on above deck, Meanwhile, below deck, the gunner is asked to consult with Stephen. And, and Stephen thinks, ah, you know, this is going to be another one of these sailors who wants to be, you know, excused from bloodletting. But instead of kind of coming in meek and mild and trying to beg off, Horner is gruff and fierce. It's not at all what Stephen had expected. And Horner says that if the bleeding would stop him doing it, as are his words, stop him doing it, now that he's come so close, he didn't want to give any blood. But if it wouldn't stop him doing it, Stephen could take a gallon. He, he doesn't care. And Stephen, you know, kind of has learned the this, this speech of the lower deck and, and kind of puts his finger on the fact that the gunner is impotent with his wife, but not with any other women. And that while the gunner and his wife don't talk about this, the gunner's wife clearly is not happy 
with this situation. Oh, Mike, apart from it's a very uneasy and horrible situation to be in. Um, and it suggests that we're going to hear more about the connection or lack of it between Horner and his wife. I, I don't think this is a nice uh, situation for Stephen either. Apart from the fact that this goes to the relationship between a man and his wife and Stephen's on shaky ground, unfortunately, with Diana at the moment, he's been in this situation before. He was in this situation in a way with Lieutenant Nichols way back in HMS Surprise in the Indian Ocean. And I think he kind of, he said then he kind of disliked this role of being part confessor and part sexual health counsellor to tortured souls, maybe because it strikes a bit too close to home. I don't know. Well, and, and, and we know things didn't turn out well with Nichols. No, they didn't. <laughs> Everybody goes on deck now to witness punishment. We've gone from thinking, well, we're not going to have any punishment. Today is a nice day to outright insubordination between Nagel and Holland to straight into, okay, now we're going to have to have punishment. We're going to have to have defaulters. And Jack addresses Nagel and calls his action disrespectful, points out that it's a hair's breadth from mutiny and therefore from death. And just like always, Jack has the 36th article of war read. The women who are on board go below because this is no sight for them. The grating is rigged and the boatswain's mate gives Nagel two dozen lashes. And there's an interesting division here, Mike, in, in the reactions of the people looking on. The new youngsters have a really hard time watching this. Stephen's big Irish servant, Padine, really, really important character for us later. Padine is there. First thing we hear from Padine is that he was weeping openly in pity at the sight of Nagel getting lashed. Most of the men, including Nagel himself, though, appear to think that, yeah, in all honesty, the sentence would have been a lot worse in most other ships. And Martin also responds really um, negatively to this whipping. He says uh, to Stephen that he hates it. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, they're standing by the rail trying to identify the shark that's been following the ship for the last two days, eating garbage thrown over the side, ignoring all baited hooks and staying too deep to be identified and too deep to be shot. And as we sort of shift perspective between the scene of Nagel getting his punishment and the scene of the shark over the side, Stephen tells Martin that the men will be cheerful again by the night's public singing, despite the whipping. And Mike, we're still, we're back right in the heart of this idea of a family. You know, there are rules and customs and transgressions, and sometimes we we skirt around or avoid talking about some of the really dark and pleasant bits by reminding ourselves of entertainments that are still to come. That the, the family on the surprise isn't in great shape. I think we're meant to respect that Jack is trying to be fair and trying to maintain his authority without being brutal. And this idea of authority aboard ship and how discipline reinforces it is a topic that we might get to pick up with a guest on the show pretty soon. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that, for sure. Well, the ship finishes the noon observation and, and they cross the tropic line. And Martin is just beside himself. You know, he's fulfilling a life's ambition to be in the tropics. And just as he's telling Stephen about that, this gorgeous tropical bird with a pink flume kind of flies above Stephen and Martin's head. Martin skips dinner to watch the birds as Stephen and Higgins start bleeding every man on the ship. And and after the bleeding is over, and they've had a couple of mishaps with people passing out and bumping into buckets of blood here that... Um, Stephen asks for some anglers from the crew 
and asked the bosun for two parcels of junk that kind of the size of babies, something that the sharks might like. And, and Jack kind of pricks up his ears and you know comes over and asks Stephen what he's <laughs> up to. And Stephen replies that he hopes that the biter might be bit, that these sharks that have been following right along, that they're the biters, but maybe we'll be biting them. It's going to be turning around on itself. And he also hopes that, you know, he wants to determine the shark species. They've just been, you know, too low to, to get shot, too low for him to tell the species. Knows the genus, not the species. So Stephen has Padine soak these babies into one of these buckets of blood. And then he takes one bucket and pours it through one of the scuppers. Uh, and, and all the hands, you know, while, while a couple of the officers are kind of going, oh, my gosh, you know, they're messing up the paintwork. The hands are just they can't wait to see this. And sure enough, the sharks come flying up fast. Uh, and and as they're right there, um, you know, Stephen has another two more buckets poured in. And, and the first baby kind of dropped in the midst of that. And the shark is allowed to set the hook that's inside this baby himself. And, and he starts thrashing around. And the other one, the other shark, Brian writes, you know, goes into a blind fury and tore out great pieces of the other shark's belly and tail. So the next baby is dropped and the second shark hits this. And O'Brien tells that the ship is pulled off course by three points with these two sharks on these hooks there. And Martin's kind of saying to Steve, you know, so what's next? I mean, my gosh, we can't bring them on board. But Jack has other thoughts. Jack has the crew working together. Everybody is just, you know, they can't wait to get at these sharks. And sure enough, they pull them on the deck. They're thrashing around and snapping. But even still, the sailors with this deep-seated hatred yeah. for sharks are, you know, walking up and kicking them and cussing at them, including Nagel. This guy has just had two dozen lashes, right? Uh, you know, some of them cut off one of the intact tails and they stick it on the ship's stern for luck. And a little bit later, Nagel comes up for Stephen and he asks if he can have just sort of a small, insignificant throwaway piece of the backbone that, that you know, his little girl would just love to have this. And, and Stephen gives it to him and then as he starts to walk away, Stephen stops, reaches into his pocket and pulls out some of these beautiful shark's teeth that Stephen had been saving to identify the species. And he gives three of those yeah. to Nagel as well. And Nagel is, is just, I, I think at first he doesn't know what to say. He doesn't know how to react. And he starts to walk off and then he turns around. And he's just so grateful. And he just goes out of his way to show it, Stephen this, this great respect and to sh tell him how delighted his daughter will be. Wow. It's it's a really striking, really unsettling bit of writing here. Again, this chapter's getting taking us to some pretty deep, dark places. There's so much imagery and so many kind of call back and call forward moments here. We're getting revenge on sharks as a species for the death of Harabedian back in Treason's Harbor. We're getting a callback or a juxtaposition with the material about whaling a few paragraphs ago. We're getting some foreboding, I think, because no author writes about blood in quite such volumes without it meaning something about um, the fate of humans. And we've got the symbolism of the, of the behavior of sharks, these beings who can be distracted into a state of blind fury so that they tear strips off each other. And you know, that's not like humans at all, is it? Mm. Um, we get the juxtaposition with it, kindness and gratitude as Stephen hands over the bone and the teeth to Nagel. 
and we get the irony that humans lash out at the sharks once they're on the deck, believing themselves, the humans, to be superior to the sharks, whereas in fact they're showing themselves to be exactly the same as the sharks in some ways. Very deep. Yeah. Very poetic. Right. You know, earlier we had the conversation about the whales and about how docile and peaceful and, and kind of, you know, approachable they are until we started hunting them. And, uh, yeah. you know, and, and a lot of the descriptions about how they were hunted and harvested sound a lot about, uh, as you point out, it sounds a, a lot like the sharks, and how they were behaving <laughs> towards one another. Yeah, here we are. Yeah, we have met the enemy and it is us. Right, exactly. <laughs> and there's this odd thing that you know, Stephen has been slightly involved in this really very cruel revenge taking on the sharks. And he and Martin, although they're both abhor cruelty to animals, are willing to say to each other that by evening, the bloodletting and the shark excitement had quite overlaid the morning's punishment and thereby made people feel better. So there's been some sort of catharsis as a result of this this really gruesome um, scene with the sharks. There was singing on deck in the evening. Mr. Martin, going all the way back to his role in uh, the Ionian mission, Mr. Martin led the choral performance and people stayed on deck to enjoy the night air. And Mike, we, we get a second look at this scene on deck in the movie with uh, with Hollum. This time, Stephen's watching Hollum, who's playing Honey's guitar. He picks out a tune and he sings, Come it late or come it soon, I shall enjoy my rose in June. Twas down in the valley, the valley so deep, To pick some plain roses to keep my love sweet. So let it be early, late or noon, I'll enjoy my rose in June. Which he sang three or four times, it says, with some subtle variations and in a curious tone that might have been called an amused confidence. A golden voice, thought Stephen looking at him. He observed that although Holland was facing the opposite rail, his eyes were in fact discreetly turned forward and following their direction, he saw Mrs. Horner fold up her sewing and rise at the third repetition with a displeased, rebellious expression and go below. Whoa. So human beings are really well behaved to each other as long as there's no violence or sex involved. <laughs> Yeah, right, right. You were pointing out, I think, last week Ian, or, or the week before about, you know, we had just had Stephen say, you know, if we just have a, a really handsome woman on board that, you know, it, uh, things are going to go so well. Yes. <laughs> and here we are testing that. Right? So in terms of the, where we are in the story and what's going on aboard the crew, of course, this is now a pretty big divergence from the movie. We didn't get um, the Weevil's joke, but we did get Wives and Sweethearts. Um, we've got Nagel, but we haven't got some of the other members of the crew that have appeared in the movie. We've got Mrs. Horner, and there are no female characters, not aboard ship, not anywhere um, in the movie. But we've got the ventriloquist voice, which also wasn't in the movie. And uh, so we've got the beginnings of some connections, I think, but some important ways in which the stories, the novel is going to branch off and follow a different path, I think, from the movie. As, as you say, Ian, you know, and, and we've got the biter bit. Um, I'm kind of wondering, you know, the biter bit. Are we going to see this again? It seems to be heading in a bit of an ominous direction. And it has me asking what happens next and with whom. So I don't know. And it seems to me we're just going to have to pull down 
this book again next week and page ahead to the next chapter. How would you feel, Ian, next week about a little bit more Patrick O'Brien? Mike, I should like it of all things. O'Brien's kind of having us, you know, watch out for a, a checkoff expression, if you will. And there's my parent exclaiming how 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 much he's looking forward to uh, <laughs> to reading the next chapter. But it's done.